by training, and also a pastor for 21 years. So it makes me kind of a weirdo. I, I realize that that's kind of a strange combination. But I tell people, no, actually, I worked on sheep as a veterinarian, and then I worked on sheep as a pastor. So it's the same thing. <laughs> same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and then a director of IBA. I became full-time. I left veterinary medicine and in 2000, or actually pastorate in 2018, and became full-time in this work. Now, when we think about science in the Bible, the real question I get from a lot of people, what's the big deal? I mean, come on. I mean, it doesn't matter how God did it. He just made the universe, whether he did it by evolution or he did it over millions of years or in 6,000 years ago, the earth is that young. Or whatever. What, why make a big fight? Because we all know the earth is old. We all know that. So what's the battle? Well, I'm going to change that. We're going to deal with these things, okay? So don't, don't get too excited yet. But this is very important to understand, and I'll show you why. This is a, an article in Fox News, by the way, very interesting. In 2018, young Christians are leaving the church in droves, in droves. You want to know why? That's important. And so there, there's a new group of people in America, a new demographic called the religious nuns, and they don't wear habits like the Catholic nuns. These are people who have no religious affiliation. The vast majority of these were in our Sunday school classes. The vast majority of them grew up in the church, the evangelical church, and now say, I have nothing to do with religion. So why did they leave? And, and went through some of their answers. And a number of them said they question a lot of religious teaching. In other words, they... They question whether it's true. And another thing was social and political issues. Can you fill in blanks there? Oh, yeah, you can just name them, can't you, of what those social and political issues are. Most of the nuns said they no longer identified with a religious group at all. They're completely free of religion. Free of religion. Not really, but okay. So what changed their minds? Because they no longer believed it to be true well that's honest okay that's honest uh, I, I really i'd rather that be the case than to be kind of faking it and not believing it so they're, they're at least don't believe they're at least telling us what they believe so what changed their thinking because they most of these were brought up in our sunday school classes in our churches sat with mom and dad in the in the church many said their views about god and i love the way they quoted this, this is very common their views evolved, and some reported having a crisis of faith. So what caused this crisis of faith? And they gave us about six answers. I'm going to give you five of the six, because one of them didn't really apply very well. And number one, by the way, look at this. Learning about evolution when I went away to college. Number two, look at those words. Religion is the opiate of the people. What is that? Calm, this Marxism. Marxism. And then rational view, rational thought, makes religion go out the window. What is that? Secular humanism, which is an atheistic religion. Okay? Lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. And I tell you, that's blindness. But... But we'll just leave that for a minute because I'll help you understand that shortly. And finally, I just realized somewhere along the line that I didn't really believe it. And here, look at these two. 
Evolution, no evidence, therefore, I don't believe it. You see that? That's an indoctrination process that takes people through and changes their mind. By the way, we see a lot happening in America. Here's, here's the source. Here's the source. So what is the issue? Truth. The real question is, is the Bible really given us truth or not? And frankly, if it's not truth, I'm going to join them. But I'm not, because it is truth. We'll work through that. So what is the issue? It's also authority. Does the Bible have the authority to speak to us as a culture? And have, a, have an effect to say, wait a minute. The Bible says... You know, in the 1960s, that's the way I grew up, and we heard that. The Bible says, everybody would stop. Okay, what does the Bible say? And we would swear with our hands on what? The Bible. That's gone. That's gone. It's amazing. It's not symbolic anymore. It's actually happened in our lifetime. So where is the attack center? That's important. Because this is where we should be focusing, right? Wherever the attack is centered. And I'm going to tell you, it starts and is centered in Genesis. And once that's gone, then it all crumbles because Genesis is the foundation of the Bible. It's the foundation of all the major doctrines in the Bible. Okay, so now we have to just stop for a minute. Let's be non-Christians, if you will. Let's be open-minded thinking people and ask this simple question. Can a thinking person in the 21st century, can a thinking person believe in the Bible in a scientific world? That's an important question that we have to just stop and say, is this real? Are we just kidding ourselves? First chapter of my book is, are we just kidding ourselves? So we're going to ask this question. Here's a, here's a little picture of my, uh, the president of IBA took when he was going through the Smithsonian Institute. They have this new display that wasn't there when I was there 20 years ago. And it's now journey through deep through the millions of years of evolution of life. They've spent tens of millions of dollars to make this magnificent display showing us the journey of deep time, working our way up to the different creatures until we get to, to where human life is. And here is one I took 20 years, maybe, no, 30-plus years ago at uh, John Day Fossil Bed Muse, uh, National Monument. You all know where that is in Oregon. Might have, no, that's, uh, and they have that same deep time showing the evolution of creatures. And then the, uh, the last little bit is what they find in the John Day uh, fossil beds. And then at the Smithsonian's Institute, they have these great T-shirt shops for all the kids. So they can get their dinosaur T-shirt with deep time on it. Deep time. And we've all seen these, right? By the way, if that is true as the origin of humanity, which we'll deal with specifically tonight, okay, then all of our ethics change. And in fact, that's what's happened. That's what's happened to our culture. Once we are realizing that we're no longer sons of the living God, but we're sons of monkeys, what does that imply in terms of our ethics to humanity? And it changes everything. Everything. And so here at the Smithsonian Institute, paid for by your tax dollars and others, our National Museum, we have a little picture of the girl and showing how she is just simply a monkey. Now, 
Admittedly, I call my little kids once in a while monkeys, okay, because they act like it, but, but are they the same? And we'll deal with that tonight, by the way. That's very important, very important concept. Now let's take you on my journey. Start out in Dickinson State University. It was Dickinson State College in that day. And I was studying biology. And uh, I had just recently married. I was 19 years old. I married my high school sweetheart, Corrine. And uh, we started out in school together. She was studying as well. And uh, I'm studying biology. And something unexpected happened. First off, our marriage was falling apart. Uh, people told me not to marry Corey because we fight too much and you'll be divorced in five years. True, they told me that. And so after about two years, I realized we're going to divorce, but I'm going to wait till five years and then I'll divorce her. Show them. <laughs> Give you an insight in Kevin Horton, okay? Uh, kind of a gnarly guy. All right, so anyways, something unexpected happened. And it started with my dad. My dad, when I was growing up, my mom was the spiritual leader of the family. We were raised Catholic. My dad signed off the rights to have religious influence on the family when he married a Catholic because he was a Baptist. And and so mom raised us with any religion we had. And and then dad started acting weird when I was in college. I mean, he just got kind of whacked out religious. He got saved, okay? But we'll, we'll... All right. I just looking at this going, what's going on, all right? And then one Easter, because Corey and I were faithful Catholics, we went every Easter and every Christmas, for sure. You know, that, that, was, that was it. And uh, so he, he invite, we went out for breakfast before Mass, and he was going to go to his church, and, and uh, he invited us to come. And he, he invited, hey, Kevin, you and Corey, we want to come to church with me. And I looked at him, no way. <laughs> Why would I, I mean, look what it's done to you, you know. And Corey said, I'm going, what? You know, it's one of those looks like, what, are you serious? And we ended up going to that church, and actually it was the first church I'd ever been to where the people were nice. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Okay. And, and I didn't see this coming, but... Uh, one Sunday night after church, or, or they had a special service, and there was a preacher there from Mott, North Dakota. And I don't know if you know this. How many of you know where Mott, North Dakota is? Not many, because you all know that Mott's the spot that God forgot. So, no. But he was there, and he was preaching, and all of a sudden he starts doing this. I go, what what's he doing? His fossils weren't jumping, but... And he said, this is your heart. Where are you? Crud, I knew where I was. I was in hell. It was the first time anybody explained to me that the whole idea of Jesus dying for our sins and that if we believe in him, simply believe, you'll be saved. (laughs) And changed everything. Our marriage came together. Amazing. What grace does. Amazing. Anyways, so I became a Bible-believing Christian. I mean, even so much some of my biology students says, what's going on with all this religion stuff? I didn't have answers yet. I just thought, well, we're going to church. I, I didn't know how to explain that yet. Well, while I'm studying or learning the Bible, I'm also learning biology. And I was taught this, where the growing human embryo goes through its stages of its, our evolutionary past. Okay, and so we have gill slits from our what past? Fish past. Okay, we have a tail from our monkey or mammalian past, and we have a yolk sac from our bird past. And this is 
profound evidence of evolution. I mean, it really is profound. And a term came with it called ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And I thought about this term, and I thought, you know, I don't know how winters are here in, in Fortuna. It's certainly milder than where I live. My, I, my wife had a snowstorm the day I left, so, so there you go. Um, I'm kind of like, and I showed her a picture of me at 66 degrees in, in, the, in San Francisco. That didn't go well, but anyway. But, you know, winters can get a little long. And you might have a gathering of people, and it's getting a little boring. So you could just go and say, well, what do you all think about ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny? See how that goes. <laughs> so we're going to learn the words, all right? So you can do it. Ontogeny. That wasn't very good. Let's try it again. Ontogeny. This one's harder. Recapitulates. Try it. That's really good. You guys are good in Fortuna, okay? Phylogeny. phylogeny. All right, so we're going to put them all together. I'll say them, then you say them. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That was actually very good. Most of the time I give an audience, and then by the time we get to recapitulates, they're all, all over the map. So you guys are good. Well, this is what I learned at, in Dickinson State College, and I was starting to have a little struggle with the Bible and its validity. Because evolution is clearly obvious from this. Clearly obvious. And so I'm struggling inside. Well, this was a, a theory put together by Ernst Haeckel back in the 1800s. He was contemporary with Charles Darwin. And he showed this to be true. In fact, he even this is his original drawings, a copy of them, um, of how the, the embryos at different stages, at the same stage, here's, um, um, let's see, these were in the textbooks in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And you notice how the fish is like this, and the humans are like this. They're almost identical in the early stages. It's profound evidence of evolution. Profound. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? And you notice we're all the same, and that shows us we have that original uh, embryonic common ancestor. And you're all looking, where's this guy's going with this? <laughs> so now my history, my story takes me to Iowa State University. <clears throat> And there I'm studying, and I'll tell you what, going into med, a, a medical school, veterinary school. Veterinary school is worse because you, you just finally get the dog figured out in anatomy, and then they throw in the horse, and then they throw in the cow, and then they throw in the chicken, and by the time, I can't remember what anything is. But we, we had, so it was just amazing. I had to take in the second winter quarter, we were in quarter system there, veterinary embryology. Now by this time, I'm growing in Christ. My marriage, which was heading for divorce, is now becoming strong. Christ is changing my life, but veterinary embryology will destroy the whole concept because I know ontogeny recapitulates, phylogeny means the Bible's wrong. What am I going to do about it? So I have to take the course. I literally did not want to take it because I didn't want to face it because it's working for me. But if it's not true, and this is what that means, then I, I'm going to lose my faith. I could see it coming. But I had to take the course. So I'm there looking at microscopic slides of growing dog embryos. And I see on their neck little things that look like gill slits. So I'm looking for the gill slits, not wanting to, but I'm going to have to see them. I never saw them. 
the whole course I went through, we, I never saw the gill slits. And I'm so busy with so many other things, I can't process it. I'm learning anatomy of horses. I'm, I'm studying all different physiology and all sorts of other courses. I didn't have time to really process this. But the course ended. And I never saw the gill slits. And I'm confused beyond confusion, but I didn't have time to work it through. And then, by God's providence, you know what providence means? Where God's working behind the scenes, bringing things together just for His intended purpose? By God's providence, right after, right after I finished this course, there was a debate on Iowa State campus between Dwayne Gish and some guy from this, the state of... What is it? it starts with a C. C-A. Oh, California. Oh, yeah. Guy from California at one of the universities here. And there was a debate on campus, so I took some time out and went to it. And the, Dwayne Gish, who was a creationist, put this slide up. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, gill slits. And he goes through the whole thing. I'm going, yeah, yeah, right. Where are those gill slits anyways? They don't exist. They never existed. And I went, and she starts showing this. I'm going, what? Pharyngeal pouches, those little indentations in the neck are pharyngeal pouches. Yeah, I remember learning that. That's where the skin bends in and forms different glands in the neck. Okay? And, and the tail, of course, look at that huge tail. Um, we had dog tails, so I saw tails. But in humans, that's the, get the evolution of this, your tailbone. It's nothing to do with the tail. It's just the end of your, your vertebrae. It actually is the wrong name. It's tubercoxy, okay? And then the yolk sac. What's the yolk do for the chicken? It feeds it, right? That's the, what's the food. What's the yolk sac on humans? It's before you have a circulatory system. You don't have bone marrow yet. You don't have bones, okay? The, bones, the, the blood has to start somewhere. It starts in the blood sac, not yolk Sack. It has nothing to do with yoke at all. It's total lie. And I about fell over during this. I went, holy smokes. This is a total lie. Total lie. And so I, I started studying this more. And you know what? You remember Hackle's drawings? They were available in textbooks until the early 1900s. Then the embryologists started saying, wait a minute, Hackle, you made this whole thing up. Because this is what an actual fish embryo looks like at that stage. And this is what ours looks like. This is a turtle embryo. They don't look anything alike. He faked the drawings. Can you believe that? Now, wait a minute. That was in the 1900s, like, like 1905. And they took them out of the textbooks. How come I was taught that at Dickinson State? Because in 1944, when that generation died out, they brought it back. Seriously. And it was taught to my professor, who taught it to me. And it's a total lie. It's, a, it's made up completely. And in fact... Uh, Karen Wellner did her doctoral thesis at a, a, uh, Arizona State in 2014, and she said this, By the end of the 19th century, as Heckel's embryo drawings became responsible, and by the way, he was really pushing evolution with Darwin, um, responsible for making similarities of embryos, common knowledge, several leading embryologists accused Heckel of doctoring his drawings to make the embryos fit his law, and that's exactly what happened, and they took them out of the textbooks. In 1944, they started coming back. So that, uh, 1991, a hundred years after the theory was proof false, and it was actually proof false in the 1800s, 
This is in the textbooks for college. Heckel's actual drawings. There they are. The actual drawings. Total lie. And they know it's a lie. Why would they do that? Because it works so well. Look what it says there. Early embryos of humans and other vertebrates look so similar that it takes an expert to tell them apart. Unbelievable. And then they even go on to say data supporting the fact of evolution. When did evolution become a fact? A fact is like a number. Okay, it's data. Fact is not a scientific term. That's a term of indoctrination. Evolution is not a fact. And notice our culture is changing and shifting, and we're saying, what's going on? We're being indoctrinated into atheism. Right. 2001 now, still there. Oh, but I didn't show you the picture of this, um, but the, they colorized his, his drawings now, so they're nicer. <laughs> The lie is cleaner. It looks more modern than his originals. I have these books. I took these pictures. These are my books. I've got them in my library. And I call this now a toxic tale number one. And why do I call it a toxic tale? Because it's a faith-stealing toxic uh, tale to your spirituality. And it's being taught to us as a culture, and it's not true. It's a toxic tale. And the first toxic tale is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Not. It's not true. It's a lie. That's why you need to learn it. Because this is an absolute lie and it's being taught. And you know it's being taught to our high school kids. I was teaching a youth group in the 1990s and I taught this to kids in my high school youth group. And they said, oh yeah, we were just taught that in school. It's being taught, folks. Being taught. And other lies. And we'll go through some of those later in the days to come. I realized I was searching for truth when I went to college and I found out I was being fed lies. And this really ticked me off, okay? Because I'm thinking, wow, I was teetering on my faith. And my, see, I understood enough, and so do the kids, that either the Bible's true or it's not. If it's all messed up, even on one part of it, then it's messed up. I don't care what anybody says doctrinally and say, oh, well, we can make ways to make this work. It's either right or it's not. Now, if God expired it, then it's going to be right. So we need to think that way. So I was searching for truth and learning about evolution when I went away to college is nothing but a lie. And by the way, when you think about what evolution is trying to tell us that happened, beyond comprehension that it happened. I mean, once you understand the complexity of life, oh my gosh, not a possibility. So it started me a quest while I was in veterinary practice in, in Corvallis, Montana, not Corvallis, Oregon. You thought that's where I was going, but no. Corvallis, Montana. And um, anyways, I was on this quest. I even made a newsletter for my clients that I put in there, a little creation corner. And I had some feedback that was always always interesting when you do that sort of thing, but uh, still just did it. You see, here's, here's a principle you need to get. Truth is truth, even if no one believes it. Even if CNN says it's not true, it says it's, says, says it's not true. It's true if it's still true. And a lie is a lie even if everyone believes it. We all know this earth is millions of years old. Oh, do we? Truth is truth even if no one believes it. And a lie is still a lie even if everyone believes it. So let's take a look at how the universe began. As we'll spend a little time with today, and I'll, I'll stretch your brains just a touch, okay? And I want to start, though, with the Bible's verse, and this is in the faith chapter of Hebrews, 
And it's this. By faith we understand that the universe, the universe was created by what? Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What does the Big Bang teach you? It all happened from existing matter. It all expanded spontaneously. What are we starting with? We're starting with existing matter. What's the Bible say? It's not there. It wasn't that way. The Word of God spoke and it happened. It came into existence. See, the universe is not the result of a natural process. The origin of the universe is not the result of a natural process, according to Hebrews. It came into existence when God spoke. And we take that by faith. Just the same faith, actually much better faith, than the atheist who says, no, no, it all just happened by itself. And I'll show you how that's impossible in a minute. So any theory that appeals to a natural process for the origin of the universe is what? It's false. It's wrong. It's wrong from the very premise. And you can get that now just from the faith chapter of the New Testament. So how did the universe begin? We're going to let the candles speak. And as we talk about candles, candles, I'm going to show you what the candles teach us about the origin of the universe. And I, I, I had to think this through and how to deal with the laws of thermodynamics. How many have heard of that before? A few. Yeah, quite a few of you. So I want to figure out how do I teach the laws of thermodynamics? And so let's let these candles speak to you, okay? What do you see here? Well, you can say, well, I see three candles, right? And what do you see about two of them? They're burning, all right? And then one of them is what? It's, it's brand new, right? It's right out of the box, okay? It's, it's in, the, in, the, in the pure, perfect state. And the other two are burning, and we can see that they've been burning for a while, aren't they? You could even make the case that this one, is that going to work? Uh, the lower, smaller one has been burning longer, couldn't you? Uh, longer. And in fact, you could probably measure them, see how long it takes to go one inch, to burn down one inch, and then you could figure out how long it took them, to how long they've been burning, couldn't you? You could also, but you'd have to take in consideration that it tapers a little bit, so you're gonna, your math's going to get a little tweaked there, all right, if you really want to do this right, but you could do it. And you'd be totally wrong. You say, wait a minute, why, why am I wrong? Because you weren't there. You're looking at it now. You don't know I took a blowtorch to burn those down so I can make this picture. Okay? <laughs> that's important. Do you see that? And you can tell now there's evidence of that. You see the wax down the bottom? Okay, that's evidence that I did it with a blowtorch. Okay? So, so I did that because I didn't have time to let them burn. All right? So I just... <laughs> down there. You see, you assume that everything's the same now. There wasn't a catastrophe. And there was a candle catastrophe back in the time past when I burned them down. All right? So that, that actually happened. Okay? So how, do the, how did this universe begin? Let's let the candle speak. Oh, so go the right way. Now, let's think about that candle burning. I want to ask you about those burning candles. Are they producing energy? If you put your hand over them, would you feel energy? Okay, and you see the light, so that's energy, right? So are they producing energy? Yes. How many say they are, are making energy right there? Put your hands up high and look around, okay, all right? How many disagree with that? Anybody? Oh, look at this. Two, three, three, four, five. They're starting, to, they're starting to get courage now. Let's try it again. Everybody says, no, they're not. Let's get your hand up high. Get them up there. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Oh, look at this. Oh, we got some, somebody switching over. <laughs> 
Candles are not making energy. They're converting energy that already exists in the paraffin, in the molecule of paraffin. It's a conversion process. It's not making process. So we think about the sun. Is it making energy? No. It's converting it. It's converting it. The energy is already in there in the mass of the sun, in the molecules, in the chemistry. And the chemistry is releasing, is being released, and so the energy is being released. And so this is the first law of thermodynamics. Oops, keeps going the wrong way. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It is simply being converted. And you know this. You know this from your gas tank. You fill up your, ga- your tank of gas, right? And the gauge starts going down. Are you making energy when you fill that up or burn? No, you're just burning up the gas, right? You're converting the gas energy to motion. That's what you're doing, all right? When the gauge goes down to zero, you know you've got some problems, okay? You're going to be walking, all right? So energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's converted. That's the first law of thermodynamics. Now, the implication to that is this, is that the sun couldn't create itself, You see that? It couldn't create itself because it has to be set with all the wax in place, if you will. If you think of the sun as a candle. It had to be set there with all the conditions right, then it had to be lit. And then it starts converting down, and it's burning up. And it'll eventually burn up. So we take that to a second law. Oops, got to keep going the wrong way on this. Burning process is not creative. It's just releasing it. All right? It's a conversion of energy. So the first law of thermodynamics has an implication that the universe could not create itself. Do you see that? Because it's a conversion process. It's not a creation process. It can't create itself. It has to be set, ready to go, and it's converting it. Now, we look at this again, and there's another aspect to what we see happening to these candles. And if we look at the, the one that's not been lit yet, 100% of the energy is there in potential energy. All we have to do is light it and start the burning process, right? Now, once it starts to burn down, and that's called 0% entropy, and we'll come back to that. 0% entropy up on the top. All right? Oops. God, i got to figure this pointer out. Okay. So, but now take that smaller one. 70% of its energy is gone. If it will actually burn all the way down instead of me blowtorching it, so there's a pile down there, but let's let go that go, let that go. Seventy percent of that energy is gone. Where is it? Where is it? It's the heat isn't gone. It's out in the space. It's not disappeared. It's just dissipated out into space and actually raises the temperature of space. To Almost insignificant, obviously, but it does that. But that energy is not gone, but it's been changed to unusable energy. We can't use it anymore, can we? It's, it's, it's like gas in your truck that, uh, that's gone when your gauge is empty. You can't reuse any of that. It's gone. It's no longer usable for work. And so that's the law of entropy. Entropy is like the empty gas, the gas that's gone out of your truck. It's how much the gauge is left that you burned already. That's not usable. So it's called entropy. It's no longer usable for work. Okay? Um, and that one, of course, is, is more entropy. And so energy, second law, says is this. The energy moves from a usable form to an unusable form. Okay? Are we all okay yet? You still with me? Getting old, like, like, I didn't come to church for this. Holy smokes. <laughs> so looking forward one day, we know the candles will burn out, right? All right? Looking forward one day, we know one day the sun will burn out. All right? Looking backwards, 
There had to be a day, a day in which the candles were perfect. Looking at the sun, going backwards in time, there had to be a day in which it was in perfect condition, ready to be lit. Okay? What's that tell you? Candles have to have a beginning. What's that tell you about the sun? It had to have a beginning. Can't create itself, but it had to have a beginning. Solve that one, will you? <laughs> and in fact, that's what the Big Bang is trying to do. Because it's obvious what this is, and if you don't want God, what do you got to do? You got to get rid of him. And so you have to find some way, and you come up with the Big Bang, you know what? None of the calculations really work. They got all sorts of holes in it. Why? Because they're starting from the wrong place. What Hebrews tell us? Anything that you start without God is not going to work. It's not going to work, and it doesn't. And so the law of thermodynamics tells us the universe can't create, so it had to have a beginning. So how did it begin? Let's let the Bible tell us. Let's let Genesis tell us. What's that first verse in the Bible? Yeah, let's take a look at that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the most profound starting statement of any religious work in the world. I'll show you why. Now, first off, it's written in Hebrew narrative. Narrative of story. Now you think, oh, oh, you mean like children's literature, you know, great story. No, it's like a historical narrative, okay? It's telling us what sequence of events that happened in times past. It's in story format because all stories that you would tell, have to, even if it's nonfiction, is still in a story format. So Hebrew literature, that's, he, that's narrative, has a specific way it writes, and, and, and if you take Hebrew studies, you'll learn this stuff, and it has a certain way it writes. And what's interesting about Hebrew is the sentence order is different than the English. They start out with the verb first, then the noun, then the direct object. So, I'm going to the store, is an English way of saying it. In Hebrew, they'd say, going, I am to the store. That's normal. Going, I am, to the store. So you see, the verb is the first word in a sentence in Hebrew. Except on some rare occasions. Sometimes a word is put in front of the verb, and it changes the way a Hebrew mind would catch it. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Yoda says, Falling, the leaves are. All right? You see that, right? Okay. All right? Now, let me just start that with the way we would normally say it. The leaves are falling. All right, now, what did you picture in your mind? Leaves. All right, you see leaves, right? The leaves are falling. Falling, the leaves are. Boy, I got that direct squeak in my voice. That was pretty good, huh? All right. Falling, the leaves are. What do you see now? The action comes forward in the story, the way I've told it. In the Hebrew, the same thing happens in reverse. When you put a noun or something in front of the verb, it suddenly stands out. And in most of the time in Hebrew, we call it fronting. That means that's the subject for this next section of narrative. Okay, so in the first verse of the Bible, what is the subject? No, no. In the beginning is ahead of created God. In the beginning was put in the wrong place, intentionally saying, time, time, time is the subject. You see that? Okay, time is the subject. In the beginning is put in front of the verb. Then created, 
So we have Barashit Bara, okay? Created is Bara, okay? That's the, the Hebrew word. Then we have Elohim, God. You probably heard that maybe a time or two. So in the beginning, time begins when created God. I'll keep going the wrong way on this. The heavens. The heavens. Vashamayim. Shamayim is the word in Hebrew for heavens. And interesting is there's nothing in the heavens yet because the stars aren't made until what? Day four. All right, so he's creating what then? What's in our, in our thinking? What is the heavens then? Space. He creates space, and then he creates, oops, I keep going the wrong way, the earth. But what is the earth in verse 2? The earth was formless and void. So it's just matter, isn't it? It's not put together yet. In the first verse of your Bible, okay, that's right. Okay, we have the origin of time, space, and matter. Okay, so what do we learn from the candles? The law of thermodynamics says the universe can't create itself. It had to have a beginning. The Bible says who created it? God. And that fits what we see. That fits what we see. That's so interesting. And so we see that from the Hebrew there, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Time begins when God creates space and matter. And time is set up as the main point here. Catch that. That is crucial and amazing. Because you see, oh, I've got to remember. I'm going to have to use my clicker because I can't use this one. Application point. We only understand this since Einstein. We only understand. Einstein struggled. What is time? What is time? And he realized time is intervals in which uh, reactions happen in time, in space, and matter. And so, therefore, time does not exist outside of space and matter. Remember when we think about God? He's the inside and outside of time. He's outside of time, right? He sees us right here now, and he sees us at the ends of, the, of, of, of time, if there was the uh, ends of eternity, right now. Because he's outside of time. Time only exists inside space and matter. Your Bible states that time began when God created space and matter. Stand in awe of what we are taught in our Bibles that is revolutionary in terms of all the cosmos and their origin. Amazing statement. See, what separates Judeo-Christianity from all the religions and philosophies of the world is that we have an origin of time, space, and matter. And in verse 3, energy. And God said, let there be light, energy. So what is the origin of matter? Either it always existed, as the Big Bang theorists want us to tell, or God created it. Trouble is, the first one doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't match the laws of thermodynamics. You know what a law is in science? There is no known exception. No known exception to the laws of thermodynamics. It means that takes precedence of all of our theories and all of our hypotheses. God created is the best solution to the origin of the universe. And that's what the Bible says. So we have an origin in Genesis 1-1 of this origin of time, space, and matter. And the way God wrote it for us, he says time begins when space and matter are created. Astonishing. So here's the question I have to ask. How come so many doggone intelligent people, way smarter than me, get this wrong? How come? 
Second Peter is the most amazing chapter, uh, the verse uh, section on this, and it deals with something. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. And notice how it's so specific to our day. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. And by the way, we're going to talk about time tomorrow night, and how old is the universe and how old is the earth. And it just depends on where your clock is. Okay, we'll get to that tomorrow night. All right? But we look at this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water. So God used water as the precursor to all matter. By what? The Word of God. So the, the heavens exist by the Word of God. They existed long ago. And so the word, in, in the, in the word there is in the, uh, it's the verb to be, to exist, but it's in the imperfect tense. And that's interesting, because the imperfect tense in the Greek um, is where the writer portrays the action in process. The heavens are existing. Are existing is really a better translation. So here's how I would translate it. They deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens owe their existence, even now, to the Word of God. And that is exactly what the Big Bang theorists do. They deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens owe their existence to God. That is exactly what happens. And then it goes on, I have to put this in because we're going to deal with this on, this, on Tuesday night. And that by means of these, that be the water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They deliberately overlook a worldwide flood. They ignore that God created everything, so there's no purely big bang, not natural, not real. And they dismissed the flood of Noah. And that is exactly, Peter wrote about that 2,000 years ago, and that is our day today. That is our day today. Modern science is committed to, I want you to catch this concept now, because we'll hit it a lot. Scientific materialism. Don't call it that. That's what they call it. So you know it. Materialism means that everything that exists came out of material, out of matter, okay? Everything came out of... Well, that's true in a sense. We're on matter. But it's the matter is the creator. And that's really atheistic materialism. And science is committed to atheistic materialism. And most scientists, Christian even scientists, don't understand that. They miss this fact. And that's everything that goes on. So matter is the creator in science. And so my quest comes to a place where I now, 30-some years later, have concluded, wow, look at this. And I'm studying still. There's more to be learned. And so we come to the very end and ask this question about the existence of this universe. And we ask, what are our choices? Either we have an eternal God who spoke time, space, matter, and energy into existence, or we have eternal matter. Which one is scientific? Only the eternal God. But it's dismissed by atheistic materialism as unscientific. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And we're the scientific ones, really. We match reality. See, Genesis is the foundation of everything. Everything that exists. Isn't that something? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you that you are the great creator. 
that you are the one who spoke and all of time, space, matter, and energy came into existence. Astonishing. And that you tell us in your first verse that time begins when you created space and matter. It's exactly what had to be. The candles scream out, this is true. Thank you that you came to meet us personally and solve our sin problem by stepping in a time and space in the person of your son to take on my sin and the sins of the world to give us new life in Christ Jesus. Now, Father, help us think right so we can respond to our culture and draw them back to sanity. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word which gives us sanity. The word that spoke the universe into existence stepped into time and space and took my sin. Astonishing story. Thank you, Father. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here who we will have eternity together, those who have faith in you. Pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.